I felt led this morning to talk about revival, and I want to use the text, 2 Chronicles 7:14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Father, I just pray you'll quiet my heart, that you'll be honored in everything that's said. We pray in your name, amen. I want to start with some really good news. You may all be aware of this, but many of you may not. God is moving among young people today. I want to start by reminiscing a bit. In 1970, I was a senior at Asbury College in Wilmore, Kentucky. And on February 2nd, 1970, in a chapel service, the speaker felt led to, instead of speaking, have a testimony time. And a couple of people got up and went forward to testify. A senior spoke about wasting three and a half years. I'm sorry. When I talk about this, I still get emotional. Wasting three and a half years, and he was all in for God. And the next thing I knew, the side of the auditorium was filled with people wanting to go up and testify. And then the altar filled with people. And for the next seven days, we worshiped God, and God was with us. And we felt a a wonderful sense of God's power, his presence. And about the second day, a church, or excuse me, a school wanted one of our students to come out and just tell what was happening. And he went out to Azusa Pacific College, came back a couple of days later with report that revival broke out there. I went home that weekend. My dad asked me if I would just tell what was happening. I just told about what was happening at Revival. And it started in our church. And as I say, for seven days we worshiped God. And it changed my life forever. Now, that was 53 years ago. On February 8th of this year, they again had another chapel service at Asbury. I'm not sure why God uses Asbury, but he he tends to bless that school sometimes. They had a sermon, a few students stayed to pray, and then a few more students came to pray, and then a few more students. And that went on for 16 days. Interestingly, in our revival in 1970, we went out all over the country and told what was happening. In this revival, people came from all over the world. More than 50,000 people descended on Wilmore over the next 16 days. Wilmore has about five to 6,000 people in it. So 
it was overwhelming. I mean, the traffic was stopped and they worshiped God and people came and came. There were more than 280 colleges and universities that sent representatives to the revival to see what was happening and they went back to their schools. People came from all over the world. I remember hearing of one couple that sold their car in Chile so that they could come to Wilmore and be there. We went up to Asbury in May, Julie and I, and a team at that time was in London after having been asked to come and share about the revival. Uh, last week we read that revival broke out in Nicaragua. So God has been moving among young people and I just wanted to talk a little bit about revival this morning and share some thoughts that I believe God has put on my heart. I want to start with four observations about revival. Number one, whenever God moves, he always starts with his people. This has been his course of action throughout scripture and church history. To revive means to return the life to. Dead people have never had life. So God in revival does something for his people when they've been content to live without the evidence of his power in their lives. Number two, every revival has resulted from a renewed authority of the Holy Spirit in the church. Sadly, we become a culture of Christians trying to do God's work apart from the power of God's Holy Spirit. Revival is the work of the Holy Spirit. Number three, for God's people to go forward, it often requires that we go backward to rediscover and reclaim our spiritual roots. Every revival brought people back to the place where they left God. This is how he always works. And number four, the people of God shape a nation. As go his people, so goes the redemption of the world. I believe we're either closer to revival or judgment than we have ever been. We either return to God with all our hearts or he will judge America and there's no alternative. Now I wanna talk a little bit about the reality of revival and what, what I believe happens. Beloved, we can't dictate to schedule for, or control the Holy Spirit. But when he shows up in revival, certain things happen. The first is we regain a holy fear of our Father in heaven. Much like Isaiah 6, where the prophets saw the Lord high and exalted, when the Holy Spirit brings revival, there's an overwhelming sense of God's presence and of the realization that he is holy and we are not. 
What is this fear of the Father, this fear of God? A.W. Tozer, in one of his books, states that when we come in close relationship with God, we begin to worship him. We experience astonished reverence, breathless adoration, awesome fascination, lofty admiration, and breathless silence. These elements add up to the fear of God. Sadly, today the church has lost holy fear. We've changed God into our image. We've reinterpreted his commandments, and we've assumed that if God doesn't judge us, things are fine. Beloved, we need a deep reorientation back to God, and this begins with a return to God's word. I want to note the experience of King Josiah in 2 Kings chapter 22 and 23. Josiah became king at age eight, and at age 18, he began a renewal of the neglected temple. As the priests were cleaning it, they found the scriptures and they read the sacred text to Josiah. And the Bible says, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. As the covenant in Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 23 was read, Josiah realized for the very first time what God's standard had been all along. The first part was very positive as to what God would do if the people followed and practiced what he said. But beginning with Deuteronomy 28:15, God said that if they didn't obey what he told them, he would reverse all their blessings as his covenant people. Josiah's heart was pierced. He wept, tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and called the people together to repent. He knew they were standing on the edge of destruction. For all the times where the scriptures were being ignored, judgment was progressing. It didn't matter what they thought was acceptable to God. It was what God said that counted. So Josiah called the spiritual leaders together, and they corporately repented. And in response, God listened to Josiah's heart and said, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord, I also have heard you, says the Lord, Surely, therefore, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered, gathered to your grave in peace. Beloved, when we don't fear God, we will not fear sin, for there's a direct relationship between our view of God and our view of sin. We must come back to God's word and relearn his standard. And this leads to my second point, when revival comes, we recognize the seriousness of sin in our hearts. To examine this, I want to look at King David and look at it from two views, man's view and God's view. 
There's no stronger passage on man's view of sin than Psalm 51. God, through Nathan the prophet, made David face the horrible nature of his sin. David knew that he rightly deserved death from God for knowingly violating his clear command. David recognized that every time we violate what God has said, it reflects on his name, his holiness, and his righteousness. David's spirit was shattered when he saw the seriousness of his sin, and he prayed, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. When my life is right with God, it becomes a channel over which God can move on others. That's man's view of sin. What about God's view of sin? This is found in 2 Samuel 12, where Nathan told King David the story of the poor man with but one lamb and a rich man with many sheep who took the poor man's lamb. David's response was, that man deserves to die. And then Nathan said to David, you are the man. God then put David's sin in the context of his grace toward David. When David sinned, he did it knowing all that God had done for him. When he sinned, he despised God and his word. And when he sinned, he gave occasion to the enemies of God to blaspheme his name. Now we may say that's not how I look at it. But what matters is how God looks at it. That's the seriousness of sin as seen in the Old Testament. What about a New Testament Christian? Hebrews 10, 28, 29 says, anyone who rejected the law of mercy, sorry, the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them and who has insulted the spirit of grace. How does God see the sin of New Testament believers? He says we trample Christ under our feet. We treat as unholy the blood of his covenant and we're insulting the Holy Spirit. That's how serious sin is in the heart of a believer. Beloved, we must humble ourselves, pray, seek his face, and turn from any sinful ways. Then God will hear from heaven and will forgive our sin and the healing of America will begin. A third thing happens in true revival. We allow God to repair the highway of holiness. Isaiah 35, 8 through 10 says, a highway will be there called the highway of holiness. The redeemed will walk there and those the Lord has rescued will return. 
They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. God wants to establish a highway of holiness, and he's not changed his agenda. He wants to be us to be his holy people through whom he can move to work on those who don't know him. And when we stand in the presence of a holy God, we must be holy. Psalm 24, verses 3 to 5, must be applied when we're praying for revival. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god, they will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. It is an offense to come into the presence of a holy God and ask him to bless us when our hearts are not clean before him. Thankfully, all over the nation, people are finding their hearts returning to the Lord. We must let the full measure of the nature of God become the pattern for our characters. We must let him take every part of our minds and our hearts and keep them holy unto him. So what are the results of a true revival? Blaise Pascal was a 17th century French scientist who was a genius in mathematics, a philosopher, a writer, but best of all, he experienced a personal, overwhelming encounter with God one night that changed his life. Pascal wrote on a piece of paper a brief account of his experience, folded the paper, and kept it in a pocket close to his heart, apparently as a reminder of what he had felt. Those who attended him at his death found the worn, creased paper. In Pascal's own hand, it read, from about half past 10 at night to about half past midnight, fire, O God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not the God of the philosophers and the wise, the God of Jesus Christ, who can be known only in your ways of the gospel, security, feeling, peace, joy, tears of joy. Amen. Pascal's mind was one of the greatest, but the living God had broken through and beyond all that was human, intellectual, and philosophical. The astonished Pascal could only describe in one word the visitation in his spirit, fire. This was not a statement in sentences for others to read, but the utterance of a yielded man during two awesome hours in the presence of his God. 
There was no human engineering there, no manipulation. There was only wonder and awe and adoration wrought by the presence of the Holy Spirit of God as Pascal worshipped. And I find it most interesting that fire is the same word that President Kevin Brown used to describe the outpouring at Asbury. What we need today is a genuine visitation of the Holy Spirit among God's people. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is Christ's presence, the manifest presence of God, Christ's power, a sense of his strength and adequacy, Christ's purity and wholeheartedness, Christ's peace, a sense of safety and security, and Christ's productivity, the gifts of the Spirit making us productive and useful in his service. So here we are. Even though we've seen God moving on young people, a nationwide renewal waits on the response of his people. And beloved, we carry a sense of urgency for two reasons. Number one, we are closer to judgment than we have ever been before. And number two, we may be the generation that is still living when the Lord Jesus returns. God may now be calling the last generation of those who will go with him on mission to the ends of the earth. God is waiting to hear from heaven, to forgive our sins, and to heal our land. Our role is to humble ourselves and pray and seek his face and turn from any sin in our lives. God bless this word. Speak to our hearts. We pray in your name. Amen.